think confidence in an investment approach is at the core of long-term success as an investor. Confidence can help us develop and implement an approach, and, as importantly we think, that belief helps us to stay true to a methodology when that methodology doesn't seem to be doing so well. It also may help folks like us help others to do the same. Unfortunately, undue confidence also can lead us to stop questioning an investment approach, might leave us to miss the risks in our methods, or at least allow us to discount them because, well, we know best, yeah? Overconfidence can be as much of a risk in investing as is investing itself. We see it time and time again, and we've run across some doozies in just the past few weeks. First, there were the folks who famously needed bailouts from some professional buddies on account of massive short bets against video game retailer GameStop and other stocks. To recount that episode, some hedge fund folks decided to short shares of certain stocks. GameStop just happened to become the most notable of them. Someone shorting a stock generally expects to see the price of that stock fall. The short bit is the fact that they sold the stock without actually owning it. To complete the sale, the shares are borrowed with a promise to give them back at a later time. The give them back bit generally requires that the short seller ultimately buy the shares at some point. In the meantime, the short seller generally must pay a fee in the form of a percentage interest to borrow the shares, and for the popularly shorted stocks, those fees can be steep. Now, normally when one is short a stock, and the stock goes in the wrong direction, up that is, one might actually be forced to buy back the shares. And that's because, differently than buying a stock where the risk of a loss is a mere 100% of one's investment, there's infinite risk to shorting. That is, a stock can go up forever and losses can accumulate until the short seller cries uncle. But since the folks from whom the short seller borrowed the stock don't wish to partake in an infinite loss, they require the short seller to post a certain amount of capital, called margin, against those interim losses. That capital has to come from somewhere, so sales of other positions might be required. The short seller also could seek to close out a portion of or all of the short position to limit losses. Trouble is, of course, the very act of buying those shares may force the price of those shares to rise, potentially further fueling the need for capital, and so on. Well, that's what seems to have happened in the GameStop case. Grand bets that certain stocks would fall didn't work out as planned, with spectacularly terrible results for the folks who were meant to be, or at least who were paid to be, among the smartest playing the game. Ah, well, that's all old news now. More recently, there was the admittedly less covered on these shores collapse of financing group Greensill Capital. It's a bit more of an esoteric story, but one that involves the now classic error of failing to consider the weakest links in grand projects of financial engineering. Briefly, Greensill sought to provide the means for folks to bridge the gap that exists between the time when producers incur costs related to their goods and dollars are received from the sales of those goods. A classic example is that of farming. The farmer must invest heavily in the cultivation of a crop. Months might go by, though, between when the plow strikes soil and buyers present cash. What used to be called factoring, but which is now called the fancier-sounding supply chain financing, is meant to bridge that gap. In return for a bit of a slice of those eventual dollars paid by the buyers, the supply chain financier will provide the seller think of the farmer here, with revenue close to when those costs were incurred. Now, that scenario can go bad. Imagine that crops are planted, dollars are received by the farmer, but a weather event destroys that crop. Revenue won't come in as originally planned. Generally speaking, that's the risk the financier is taking on, a risk for which the extra return is demanded for the financing. The financier can seek to use diversification among the farmers to offset individual losses. Otherwise, Various forms of insurance can fill the gaps. 
I bet you all can guess what happens next. As is seemingly increasingly the case in finance, one can take what sounds like a reasonably simple process and complicate it in all sorts of ways. Here, Imagine again a loan to a farmer, but this time to many farmers, and imagine that the money for those loans are provided by other investors, not just, in this case, the supply chain financier. Throw in some insurers that were providing protection for those investments, and some insurers of those insurers, along with some banks that were providing funds to the farmers, the financier, and the financier's investors. Even a financier had a bank involved in the system. So many layers so much leverage. And here again, a weak link wrecks the whole machine. It's rather convenient that supply chain financing has the word chain in it, as some manner of chain reactions is generally what leads to the demise of these sorts of setups. First, an insurer decides that the exposure to green sale was too heavy and stops providing coverage. Other insurers steer clear. At least one investor, in this case the global bank Credit Suisse, which had utilized that insurance to treat its investments in and those managed for Greensill as risk-free, finally sees through to the actual risk its association presented and freezes funds. Other investors put on the brakes. Boom, boom, and boom. Making matters worse, it turns out one of the primary recipients of the supply chain financing was not as forthright regarding his debts, of which the supply chain financing apparently assumed an ample proportion. By the way, this type of debt is rather more conveniently obscured in financial statements. It seems to be the case that, without the funding Greensill provided, the company wasn't stably solvent. By the way, this particular entity is the United Kingdom's third largest producer of steel. More fuel meets flames. Back to Greensill, debts involved in the mess are measured in the billions. The Financial Times reported that Greensill lent approximately $50 billion in 2020 alone. Many entities will suffer losses. What strikes the most off-key chord is that this very same framework describes with near exactitude that which proved the source of the financial crisis of 2008. We shouldn't need to say that folks should have known better. Turns out there were lots of eyes on all these players, all around the world in fact but too many gave the inherent and sometimes obvious risks a pass. So I've got one more tale for you. Just last week, we were greeted with news that an investment firm that managed the money of an investor not long ago convicted of insider trading in Chinese stocks was using, you guessed it, complex derivatives to make bets on stocks well in excess of the capital they had on hand. Handily for them, these types of firms are known as family offices and are basically treated like individual investors, which they kind of are really, except when the sums involved have the potential to present potentially existential challenges to various otherwise regulated systems and entities within those systems. Anyway, one of the bets this family office made soured. Not so spectacularly from a conventional equity risk viewpoint, but in demonstrably terrible fashion for the highly leveraged position of this particular family office. Another chain reaction was set in motion, and not only for the investment firm. Some of the banks on the other side of these derivatives suffered heavy losses as well as they, unknowingly or not, also in various ways were making bets on the outcomes. As a side note, within these banks are risk departments that are meant to ensure that these sorts of bets aren't really bets, but rather exist within investment frameworks with reasonably narrow outcomes, mostly skewed to the positive. Oops. Leverage in finance can be thought of just as it is in physics. One uses a tool to increase the potential output of a device. In finance, leverage generally can be seen as explicitly or mechanically borrowed funds that are used to amplify the actual funds used for a particular investment, thereby amplifying the potential returns 
or losses on those actual funds. In both physics and finance, however, one must be sure that the various components of the leverage system can withstand the forces involved. Backup systems can be pretty helpful too. Much as it likes to make use of leverage, seems like the finance industry continues to experience epic failures in its understanding of either or both of the forces involved or the robustness of the individual components within the instruments it creates. And it's not just the use of leverage that makes for a complicated, potentially destined to distant point investment methodology or product. We regularly are pitched ideas for shiny new things to present to our clients, and we're happy to hear about them. Most involve relatively straightforward exposures to known risk factors with reasonably easy to determine potential risk reward outcome, stocks, bonds, and the like. Many even layer in sophisticated, but still reasonably easy to explain investment approaches, such as the multi-factor equity methodologies driving some of the funds we utilize to gain equity exposure in our portfolios. But many aren't that straightforward. Many express relatively esoteric risks. Many speak to potential excess return, but leave out a frank presentation of associated risks and the scenarios that would see them arise. Generally speaking, we're happy to steer clear of those sorts of setups, understanding full well that even our rather straightforward approach to investing involves at its core the potential for investment risk to present unfavorable outcomes over short, medium, and even long-term timeframes. We know, too, that we must regularly review our approach to ensure that we have not ourselves become overconfident in our designs, complacent in our oversight, and anemic in our flexibility and adaptability to new opportunities and fresh risks in the context of evolving client situations, concerns, and goals. Importantly, past performance is not indicative of future results. The foregoing commentary is not presented as an investment recommendation. The approach described may not be right for everyone. No one listening to this commentary should take our comments as advice specific to or appropriate for their individual situations. Individual circumstances should be taken into consideration when determining a suitable investment approach. All investing carries risk.